The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your Word. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we pray that as you have revealed these things to us for a special purpose, that we might pay attention to the exposition of the Word this morning, that we might realize that that you have uh, given us these insights into your plan, your purposes for human history, that it might be a, a present warning and encouragement to strengthen us in our daily walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, after a six-month hiatus, we are back in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm sure that everybody here remembers all the details that we studied in the first uh, 54 hours of Revelation, right? Uh, I didn't think so. So we're going to probably have two or three weeks of review just so we get through those first two chapters again so everybody has a good understanding because I know that we have three groups of people here. We have those that listened to the tapes before I came and moved back to Houston. and We have those that were here from November or December of 2000 and what was that, 2004 up to... July, and so they have that frame of reference. And then there are others who have just joined us recently in the last six months. So uh, there are some of you who don't really have the whole picture here. So we'll just take an overview and look at chapter one this week and chapter two next week. Although, because we had the Lord's table this morning, we may not make it all the way through chapter one because of the uh, short, because of time factors. We're studying the book of Revelation. Now, why should we study the book of Revelation? One of the reasons I like to answer that question right off the bat is because somewhere along the line, people got this notion that, that a lot of folks just study prophecy to sort of titillate their curiosity, to, to find out uh, what's going on today so that they can properly uh, exegete the newspaper reports and figure out what's happening, where are we on the uh, time scale of prophecy, what's happening in Israel. We have the recent uh, elections of Hamas there in uh, among the Palestinians, not to mention the ongoing threats by the uh, president of Iran who wants to wipe Israel off the face of the map. He made another such statement yesterday, plus the 
increasing nuclear threat from Iran. All of this, of course, focuses the attention of our modern world on a very ancient problem and situations and rivalries and racial hatreds that go back all the way to uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And all of this, of course, lays the foundation for what the Bible teaches about the future. Not to mention the fact that you have uh, uninformed folks in the mainstream press who throw around terms like Armageddon and evangelical Christianity and have no clue what they're talking about and just get everybody all confused. So we need to take some time to look at what the Scripture says in the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, there is a blessing that is promised to those who study this last book. It is not written for the purpose of satisfying our curiosity about the future. That's not what it's about at all. There is are very important reasons to study Revelation as well as to study prophecy in Scripture. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. There's this sense of urgency that the uh, writer of Revelation has that, that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment. This is known as the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture, that there are no signs of the times related to the rapture. The next thing that we're looking for in God's prophetic timetable is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the air for the church, and it could happen at any moment. So we have to be ready. We have to be prepared. So there's a blessing for those who read, as we'll see. Uh, that doesn't mean simply sitting down and reading through uh, the book of Revelation in your uh, devotional time. It has to do with the, it's anagonosco, it has to do with the uh, exposition, the explanation of what the book of Revelation means. So it, it refers more to the pastor and his uh, exposition of the word than it does individual, individuals who read the book. So blessed are those who read, that is the pastors who teach the word, those who hear the words of this prophecy, those who study it. But as James says, it's not just a matter of hearing. It is also that we are to be doers or appliers of the word. And John echoes that by saying that it's the one who hears the words and heeds the things that are written in it. That is, it's not just a matter of intellectual curiosity or academic investigation. It is a matter of uh, taking these things and applying them to our thinking and to our lives. Why should we study prophecy? Well, just by way of introduction, when we look at the Bible, 28% of the Bible was prophetic when it was written, when it was revealed. Now, some of that has already been fulfilled, but much of the Bible was prophetic. That is, it foretold future events at the time that it was written. 15% of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. So, just if you, that's a rounding off, it's a little bit more than that. 15% of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. In the New Testament, 18% of the New Testament epistles, that's one out of every five verses in the New Testament, is unfulfilled prophecy. Now, I heard a pastor one time make the uh, egregious statement that 
We real, he was never going to teach the book of Revelation because people just wanted to study it because it, they were just uh, inordinately curious. Well, what do you do with the fact that, that 18% of the New Testament epistles are prophetic? This is important. God has revealed this to us for a reason, not even though people may come to it for wrong reasons. Frankly, most people come to a lot of stuff for wrong reasons. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. One in twelve verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming of Christ. That's significant. There's a focus on the second coming of Christ. One in ten verses in the epistles refer to the second coming of Christ. So that tells us that, and, and beyond that, 60% of the verses in the New Testament are affected by eschatology issues. That's a technical theological word for the study of the last things, that is the study of prophecy. 60% of the verses in the New Testament are affected by eschatology issues to be properly understood. That is, if you don't understand God's timetable for history and the future and what is going to take place in the future, then you can't properly orient to the future in the present time. Not only that, but you're going to misunderstand and misapply, misinterpret many of the passages in the New Testament. Furthermore, prophecy is given for the purpose of encouraging believers through times of adversity that God is in control. History is moving in a direction. There will be a day of accountability and evaluation for believers and unbelievers alike, and evil will be resolved and judged. Now, that's a long statement. If you look at the Old Testament, where do you have these, these large amounts of text that are related to future events. You find them primarily in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, what the Jews refer to as the Twelve. And these were written as part of it was a warning that the nation would go out under the fifth cycle of discipline if they didn't return to God. And that there would be judgment. But not only would God judge Israel, he would also judge the other nations. So there were pronouncements of future divine judgment against Babylon and against Edom and against Moab and against uh, Tyre and against the Philistines and against uh, the Assyrians. But the purpose for that was to give real comfort and encouragement to believers like Daniel and his friends and others that were alive during the time when the Jews were defeated by the Babylonians, so that as they asked the question, well, has God forgotten us? God was saying that, no, this is the future plan. I have not forgotten you, but right now you're under divine discipline, but there, but I have not lost control, and there is a future for Israel. So prophecy was written to encourage and strengthen believers in times of crisis and in times of uncertainty, and we certainly live in times of uncertainty today. Second, it was to inform believers about a coming evaluation, that there is judgment coming, that there is an evaluation for believers at the judgment seat of Christ, not for salvation, not to determine if you're going to go to heaven, but there will be an evaluation in relation to our destiny with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future millennial kingdom. Third reason to study prophecy is to provide details about the end, end times for the encouragement, protection, and direction of tribulation saints. 
So there will be those who are saved during that future time, that seven-year period that the Bible calls the tribulation. It's also referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble, and it is the most horrendous time in human history. Events such as those of 9-11, events such as that the... uh, uh, tsunami this uh, a little over a year ago down in Southeast Asia, uh, hurricanes like Katrina and Rita will cr- create. I mean, there will be adversities that create disasters like that on a daily basis, and and humanity will be absolutely <coughs> overwhelmed by the fact that it will seem as if the Earth and God have turned completely against them, and that will be true because it is the closing time of judgment on a rebellious mankind. And fourth, the fourth reason to study prophecy is to because or to study revelation is that it completes God's revelation to mankind with reference to the sufficiency of scripture. Scripture wouldn't be sufficient if it didn't give us a uh, an overview of God's plan for the future. So because we understand where history is going, it gives us perspective on what is happening today. Now, that doesn't mean that we can go into uh, current events and figure out where we are on the prophetic timetable. We are in what is called the church age, and the church age is a time where there are trends that continue through history, but there are no prophecies that are fulfilled during the church age. It is a time of expectation. If a prophecy, just to give you a little hint, if a prophecy were necessarily to occur in the church age before Jesus came back, then would you be looking for the blessed hope of the appearance of the Lord, or would you be looking for the sign of the times? You'd be looking on that sign of the times, but the scripture says that what we look for today is the blessed hope of his return. That's the next thing that happens on the uh, prophetic uh, timetable. Prophecy, therefore, is designed to motivate believers, to encourage believers in terms of their present uh, spiritual life and spiritual growth. It's also been used by the Lord for evangelism purposes. One of the more well-known popular treatments of biblical prophecy is a book called The Late Great Planet Earth written by Hal Lindsey back in the early 70s. And um, that book is now, I think, 32 million have been in print. And I don't know if anybody here came to salvation through reading uh, The Late Great Planet Earth. If I don't have anybody here that came to salvation through reading The Late Great Planet Earth, it's going to be the first congregation uh, of that type that I've ever had. I've always had three or four people who got saved reading The Late Great Planet Earth. They picked it up at a, a newspaper books, I mean, at a grocery store book stand, or somebody gave it to them, or I had one uh, uh, individual in my church in Connecticut who saw it and thought, boy, this, is, this looks like a good book on ecology. And he was a liberal greenie at the time, and, and uh, he's certainly not now, but he read that. And then he gave it to his sister to read, and that started their trek on uh, spiritual growth. And there have been, I would say, thousands upon thousands of believers who have 
uh, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior through the study of prophecy. The same thing is true with this series that uh, um, Tim LaHaye just wrote uh, on, on the uh, Left Behind series. As there have been tens of thousands of people who have read that, and they realize that history has a purpose and a meaning and a destiny, and that there will be accountability someday, and that, uh, that they need to be prepared uh, to meet the Lord. So uh, prophecy is used to challenge people with the fact that, that don't just live today in light of today or tomorrow, but we're all headed to a point where there will be accountability. Several passages emphasize this for believers. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 through 6 is a well-known passage related to the next event in history known as the rapture of the church. And Paul says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. You're not spiritually uh, ignorant. That the day would overtake you like a thief. It will take, the rapture will overcome many people like a thief unexpected, unexpectedly. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you are all sons of light. And sons of day, we are not of night, that is, as believers, we are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. And there he's not using sleep as a euphemism for physical death. He is using sleep for people who are just numb to the realities of history and its destiny. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. That is not referring to a lack of intake of alcoholic beverage. That's talking about being, having an objective mindset so that you can accurately evaluate uh, what is going on around you. Hebrews 10:24 and 25 uses the same motivational technique. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see what? The day drawing near. Well, what day is that? That is the rapture. So that we are to be challenged in terms of our present spiritual life and spiritual growth because we know that with each moment that passes, with each day that goes by, we are but a day closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. James 5, verse 8. You to be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And this is the word, in, the verb here is engizo. You have the verb engizo and then the noun form ingus. And this indicates something that is, uh, could happen at any moment. First Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be objective, be focused, understand what God is doing in history. In Revelation 22.10, at the close of the book of Revelation, the Lord says to, uh, or the angel says to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In other words, uh, pay attention to what is going on, what has been revealed in the book of Revelation. So Revelation is written to warn us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, but it is to get our attention that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to come back in the air for the church. And following that, not immediately, but sometime subsequent to that, there will be the beginning of this seven-year period that is the most horrendous period known in human history, known as the Tribulation, a time of judgment, a time when the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God is poured out on humanity. And following that, it will be a time of, of judgment. 
So let's look at Revelation just in terms of a basic outline. Revelation 1.19 gives us the structure of the entire book. It talks about the things which you have seen. In Revelation chapter 1, it describes what John saw originally on the Isle of Patmos. That vision of Jesus Christ as high priest and judge, which foreshadows his role as the judge or evaluator of the church that comes up in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, and his role as the judge of humanity in Revelation 4 through 19, and his role as the ruler king of the earth in Revelation 20, and then the future new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. So John is told to write down the things which you have seen, the original vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter chapter 1, the things which are, that refers to the trends of the present church age and the evaluation judgment of congregations, these are listed, there are seven in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And then the things which will take place after these things, this is the period that covers what we call the tribulation and then the millennial kingdom and then the future eternal state, Revelation chapter 4, verse 22. People are always concerned about the future. What's going to happen? Where are things headed? How do we have... Uh, certainty, stability. In fact, recently I was talking with, with someone who just pointed out that, that the world is in such a state of chaos and uncertainty at any day we could have a, a, an attack, a terrorist attack in this country that, that makes uh, uh, 9-11 just pale by comparison. So there are many folks who don't sleep well. They worry, they're concerned, they have to travel, their friends travel, they go to they have family members who are fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq or they're involved in the military in some other anti-terrorist activity. They just worry. But, but as believers, we know that God controls history, that God controls the destinies of man. And so we can relax as observers and watch how God is working things out to bring about the conclusion of his plan. It's almost fun to sit back and just watch and see things unfold and wonder just how God is moving the, the, the pieces on the chessboard of history to bring about the final events defined in books like Daniel, uh, Zechariah, and Revelation. Now, an overview or outline of the book based on Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This is just an expansion of what I just gave you, but giving you a little more detail. We have a picture of the glorified Christ as the judge of the church in chapter 1, the things which you have seen. Then we have the seven churches of the church age and the cycles of and trends of the church age as, as uh, uh, symbolized by the strengths and the weaknesses of these seven congregations. This is the present church age and then the future uh, of the period of the tribulation and on into the millennial kingdom. Chapters 4 through 19 cover the tribulation period. We have a focus on three sets of judgment that take place during that time. You have the seven seal judgments. The seventh seal judgment or the seven, contains the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. And the final bowl judgment... Uh, ends up at the battle at a valley in Israel known as the Valley of Megiddo, 
Har Megiddo, which is where we get the term Armageddon, which is only used one time in Scripture, but that has become uh, the name for that final great battle where uh, the forces of man are gathered against God. They desire to destroy his people, Israel, and Israel, uh, or the, the remnant of Israel, finally turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, calls upon him to return. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they call upon Jesus Christ to come and deliver them, and he returns at the second coming and delivers them. Establishes a kingdom, the kingdom that has been prophesied, Throughout the Old Testament, that kingdom that was announced by John the Baptist and Jesus Christ and his disciples, the kingdom that was rejected because they reject, the Jews rejected the king at the first advent, the kingdom that was postponed until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. This is the millennial kingdom or the messianic kingdom. It ends with the destruction of the present heavens and present earth, great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are consigned to the lake of fire, and then a new heavens and new earth are created, and we go into the eternal state. So that just gives you that sort of overview of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation fits into the general panorama of biblical prophecy. We are currently in the church age. We don't know where we are in the church age. We assume we're somewhere near the end. Uh, those who uh, died from the during Old Testament period are the unbelievers are sent to uh, Hades, a holding tank for unbelievers. Church age believers will be raptured when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds for his bride, for the church. And that's the way you distinguish between the rapture and the second coming. Jesus returns for the church in the clouds. And returns to heaven. Jesus said, uh, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. He didn't say, I'm going to come back and take you right back to earth. He said he was preparing a place for us in heaven, and that was our destiny. Following the rapture, there will be a seven-year period known as the tribulation. During the tribulation, we are going to be evaluated in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. And that concludes with the marriage of the Lamb. The church is the bride of Christ. We return with the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation to destroy uh, the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. There is a judgment again of Old Testament, I mean of uh, tribulation unbelievers and uh, Satan and the Antichrist and false prophet. Then Jesus establishes his kingdom, the a thousand year millennial kingdom at the end of which there is a judgment. All unbelievers are taken out of Hades and judged at the great white throne judgment, and then they are consigned to the lake of fire. The present heavens and earth are destroyed, and new heavens and new earth are established. That gives you the overview. And as we get into the prophetic section of Revelation, this will help you understand what is going on. Now let's look at the first chapter first chapter of Revelation, and much of this we studied in detail, but we need to uh, get all of this back in our heads so we understand uh, what is going on, because the picture that we see in Scripture, uh, in Revelation, is not simply telling us what these future events are going to be. It is a focus on judgment, that there is a future judgment, and judgment is a major theme 
in the book of Revelation. So in Revelation chapter 1, John sees this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he appears in this bright white uh, light. He has hair that's white as snow, white like wool. He has uh, legs that are shiny like burnished, bright uh, bronze, polished uh, metal. He comes holding a sword, a rompia, which is a, a sword used for power to e- uh, execute control. And it is a picture of Jesus Christ coming as a high priest to judge. And the first element of judgment is in Revelation 2 and 3. He is pictured as the judge, the evaluator of the churches. And then there is the rapture that takes place in Revelation chapter 4 through 19. We have the description of the tribulation, which is God's judgment on the earth dwellers and, uh, and during the tribulation. There is a judgment of Israel for their rejection of Messiah and their ongoing apostasy. This is a focal point of the tribulation, which is why one of the names for the tribulation in Scripture is that it is the time of Jacob's wrath. There is a judgment of Satan, the demons, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, which occurs at the end of the tribulation. There is a judgment of unsaved mankind, those who have rejected God's free offer of salvation, those who thought that they could do it on their own, that somehow they were good enough, nice enough, friendly enough, popular enough, that somehow they were just too nice for God to uh, send to eternal condemnation. And so all of those who have rejected God's free, gracious offer of salvation, they have rejected the provision of the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, they will be judged at the great white throne judgment. And then there will be a judgment of the present heavens and earth. So the book of Revelation is a book about judgment, that there is an evaluation coming. We come to chapter 1. This sets the stage. This is the prologue, as it were, of the book. gives us the uh, uh, framework for understanding what the book is all about. In chapter 1, we learn the title of the book. We learn the purpose of this book. We have a blessing for those who study, read, and hear and heed the words of the prophecy. We learn about the occasion of the giving of the book, the vision uh, that John uh, had on the Isle of Patmos, how the, the vision was of Jesus Christ as high priest and judge who commissions him to write down the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass after these things. And this sets the stage for understanding chapter 2. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, gives us the orientation of the book. The first three verses are one sentence. The subject is that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the word revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis. An apocalypsis means an unveiling, a disclosure, so that uh, this is an unveiling or disclosing of facts, details, information that uh, have not been given before. And what Revelation does is it pulls together details from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, these Old Testament books that talked about what would happen in the future related to Israel. And so to understand Revelation 
and the imagery and the symbolism. You have to understand the imagery and symbolism that's been developed throughout all of the prophetic literature in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is part of that biblical category of literature called uh, prophecy. So it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, certainly it could be understood to be revelation about Jesus Christ because there is much in this book that focuses on Jesus Christ. He is the key to understanding the book. In chapter 1, he is the glorified, risen Savior. In chapters 2 and 3, he is the Lord of the church. In chapters 4 through 5, he's pictured as the Lamb of God, which is one of the most often used titles in the book of Revelation, is that he is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, referring to the fact that, that this was God's plan. In, verse, in, in chapters 6 through 11, he is the judge of all mankind. Uh, this is the first stage of the tribulation, the period of seal judgments, which are described as the wrath of the Lamb poured out upon the earth. Uh, in chapters 12 through 13, he is the child of the woman who is attacked by the dragon who is Satan of old. In chapters 14 through 19, we have the description of the coming of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that Jesus Christ is the one who will come back and permanently defeat evil, defeat Satan, defeat the Antichrist, defeat the false prophet. Then in chapter 20, he is presented as the Messianic and Millennial King. And in chapters 21 through 22, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. So the book is definitely about Jesus Christ, but that's not how we should understand uh, this phrase. It is not simply the revelation about Jesus Christ, but it can also, this, this uh, genitive phrase can also be understood as Christ's revelation or the revelation which Christ gave. And that's how it should be understood, because this is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God gives or delegates to Jesus Christ a body of information or data that is then in turn to be disclosed to mankind for a particular purpose. He is to show his servants the things which must quickly take place. This is the... Uh, purpose of the book of Revelation. These things are to must soon take place. The New King James translates it, but the word there is a Greek word takus, which doesn't mean that it's going to happen in close proximity to now, but that once these begin things begin to happen, they will happen in rapid succession. They will happen quickly. So once you see the events of, of chapter 4 and 5 and 6 unfold, then everything else will, will fall out in rapid succession. So this is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants things which must quickly or rapidly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, so that there is this intermediary angel who is used to... Uh, communicate this body of information, this revelation. Um, this idea of things that must soon take place is one of the key themes in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4.1 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is the rapture uh, is alluded to here. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place 
after these things. If we were to take the time today, which we won't, we'd go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, we have the vision of uh, the great statue given to, to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. And when Daniel interprets it, he said, these are the things that must take place. Uh, later on in Matthew chapter 24, in the first five verses, Jesus is answering the question, what are the signs of my coming? He said, these are the things that must take place. And he's uh, consciously borrowing that terminology from Daniel. And he is building what he is saying in Matthew 24 on the pr- prophetic revelation given to Daniel in the Old Testament. And so what we see in Revelation 4.1 and in other passages in Revelation, such as Revelation 22.6, is that this phraseology builds on that which began with Daniel, was carried on by the Lord Jesus Christ, and is brought to fulfillment in the book of, of Revelation. So the things which must take place is a reference to future events. Revelation 1.2 says that uh, this was... Uh, given to his servant John, that is John the Apostle, who bore witness or who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. These words testified and testimony are legal terms indicating that there is a legal dimension to this book, that there is a legal witness to this book. And this is a terminology that was used throughout the Gospel of John, that human history is part of an overall trial that is taking place with relation to uh, uh, Satan and the fallen angels. And in this trial, we play a role as we give testimony to the grace of God in our lives. So John is the one who gives testimony to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then verse 3, which we've already looked at, he says, Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. Then we come to Revelation 1.4. Revelation 1.4, we shift from the prologue to the basic core greeting. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. These seven churches are are the the churches that are addressed in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. These are seven specific congregations that are chosen by the sovereignty of God because they exhibit the trends that will characterize churches throughout the church age, the good trends, the bad trends. Uh, some of these churches, have not, two of them have nothing negative said about them. Two of them have nothing positive said about them. They are a picture, the good churches are a picture of the churches who are advancing spiritually. The Word of God is a priority in their life and the application of the Word of God. The other churches are negative because they get involved in paganism. They have their priority on the wrong thing. They're not focused on the Word of God and the application of the Word of God. And consequently, there is a warning of future judgment. And throughout these seven short uh, statements of evaluation in Revelation 2 and 3, we have a promise to those who overcome, those who stick with it, those who hang in there in the Christian life, that there is special blessing to those who continue to grow and mature in their spiritual life. These churches are found in the eastern part of what is modern Turkey in what was the province, the Roman province of Asia. We think of Asia as... uh, the Far East, we think of Asia in terms of, of uh, Central Asia, the, the various uh, 
uh, whatever stands, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Tur- Turkmenistan, all the stands, and we think of, of Asia also in terms of China and, uh, and Japan. But Asia at the time of the New Testament was a small province on the western end of Turkey. And so you have these seven churches. We'll look at those in more detail as we get into the second and third chapter. So he gives a greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reference to God the Father. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come, a reference to his eternality. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the full dimension of his, of his ministry based on references in Zechariah. Uh, the spirits are before his throne, and the, the term throne, what helps us to understand this is the word throne. The only throne mentioned in, the, in, in Revelation is the throne of God the Father. Jesus Christ makes an allusion to his throne at the end of Revelation 2 that, that we are to ascend to heaven just as he ascended and sit, sits on the right hand of his Father's throne, but eventually we will sit with him on his throne, but that is yet future to the present time of the book of Revelation. So throughout Revelation, it is God the Father who is on the throne, and so we know from this that the seven spirits who are before his throne is a reference to God the Father. Jesus Christ is not on a throne yet. That doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation. Revelation 1.5, the third member of the Trinity is now addressed. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. We have a little triplet here. And this is typical in Revelation. John is fond of using triplets, using three words or three phrases to refer to something or someone. And so Jesus Christ is referred to as the faithful witness. So during his uh, time on the earth at the first advent he was a witness to the grace of God and he was a witness to uh, the, God's plan and purposes for mankind he's also referred to as the first born from the dead indicating the resurrection and that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth and this is his future uh, destiny Revelation 19.11 Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness and returns as the one who is faithful and true. Firstborn from the dead references his resurrection. This is a foundation for the church age, foundation for all Christianity. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're all fools, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter. 15. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then it's all just another religious fraud. But he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. And then when he returns, he will be the ruler of the kings of the earth, and he will set up his kingdom upon the earth. Psalm 89:27, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, connecting those two titles used in Revelation 1. 
And then Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, literally. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. And so this is a reference to his future coming at the rapture. It's, the imagery comes out of Zechariah 12.10, where God said that at the end of time he will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. And this is not the Holy Spirit. It is an attitude of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Notice that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who must be speaking here, not God the Father. There is clearly an indication of a plurality in the Godhead throughout the Old Testament. The idea that the Trinity wasn't there is just a, a, a totally mis, un, uh, uh, misconception. The Trinity is throughout the Old Testament. It goes on to say, They will look on me on whom they appear. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and so on. The point is that when Jesus Christ returns, Israel will realize what they did in re and what they lost in rejecting Christ as Messiah, that they could have had the kingdom, but they've gone through centuries of discipline. They've gone through the Holocaust. They'll go through the tribulation all because of rejecting Christ. And so they will have true, genuine grief and mourn because of that. Jesus Christ is said to come with the clouds. And this is what takes place at the rapture according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Clouds are used as in the imagery of the Bible to picture the presence of God. We'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, not on the earth when he returns at the second coming, but in the clouds when he returns at the end of the church age. We will meet him uh, in the clouds. This is talking about a location. That gives us the opening introduction to Revelation. Next time we'll come back and we'll look at the occasion when John is on the Isle of Patmos and the initial vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as judge and John's commissioning to write Revelation. So this way we'll probably have three basic uh, review sessions, first eight verses this week, the rest of chapter one next week, and then chapter two the week after that with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that there will be a payday someday. There is a judgment coming, and we need to be prepared. Perhaps you're here this morning, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You've never uh, believed that he died on the cross as a substitute for you. This is your opportunity to do that, to recognize that all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that includes you. And that we are all in need of a Savior. And that all we have to do to have eternal life is to trust Christ to save us. It's not up to us. We can never do anything. You can't go to church enough. You can't participate in enough ritual. You can't have uh, various experiences that do this. The only thing that can save anyone is for God to do it. 
And he does it as a response to our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ. He imputes that perfect righteousness of Christ to you, and he declares you just. So that it is not your works, it's not your efforts, it's not your uh, religious activity. It is simply Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. The instant you believe in him, you have eternal life, and it can never be taken from you. If you're a believer here, the issue for you has to do with the fact that eventually we will be evaluated. Are we just playing games with God, or are you serious about growing and advancing in your spiritual life? The book of Revelation is a challenge to all of us to get our priorities right in preparation for future judgment. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied, that we might uh, realize that we are to live today in light of eternity, and that the eternal realities should determine the choices we make and the priorities we have today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.